This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, April 11th. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. Uh, welcome to our podcast. We are twin brothers from Champaign, Illinois. Uh, rainy, miserable Champaign, Illinois today. Uh, we are recording this on Sunday, uh, the end of opening week. If you're new to the podcast, uh, it's a weekly ba- baseball podcast that uh, Paul and I do uh, during the baseball season. And last Wednesday was our first birthday. So As a podcast. Yes. So happy birthday, Paul. Yes, same to you. It's been a great year. Uh, it has, it has. Uh, any, any, uh, like, what's your favorite moment from one year of podcasting? Favorite moment? Uh, I thought the brothers podcast, the one we did with um, our two older brothers. Who are those? People? Uh, John and Kevin. Oh, that's right. Uh, last summer, that was pretty memorable. What about you? I think my interview with Jesse Carey mm, yeah. over the off season. That was one of my uh, my personal favorite. I also randomly remember we talked about, it was the anniversary of 9-11, um, and so we talked about baseball after 9-11 and that whole thing, and that I remember that as being a really fun yeah, President Bush's first memorable pitch. segment. Yeah. So those are just two things that stand out to me, and the, the Brothers Road Trip was fun as well. Anyways, uh, it's, it's opening week, baseball's back. Turns out there's way more to talk about on a weekly baseball podcast <laughs> when there's actual games being played, but before we do that... Almost forgot. Thanks to Nelly for the intro song, Batter Up. The Nelly fun fact this week, his debut album called Country Grammar was released in the year 2000 at the age of 26. Hmm. Country Grammar? That's the name of the uh, the album. It was a rap album, not a country album, though. Nelly singing country would be pretty fun. So, so far we've got his real name is Cornell. He was born in Austin, and his first album came out in 2006. Yes. And if you're paying attention, you might see me going down his Wikipedia page <laughs> in order there. Yeah, so thanks to Nelly. Um, one other thing before we get going, update on the over-under game. If you uh, submitted your over-unders, there's now a tab on our website, afootinthebox.com, where you can see updated rankings, and I'll uh, I'll post those weekly, so check it out and see how you're doing and there's also a link in there to see kind of the behind-the-scenes math of how it, how it all works. So uh, kind of based on how a team's uh, playing right now, their winning percentage, that was uh, extrapolated over an entire season, this is how people would be doing. So the Orioles being undefeated and the Twins not winning any games yet throws off the math a bit, but uh, you know, over the course of the season it should get um, look a lot better than it is now. Yeah, so getting into the uh, baseball that's being played... Let's just get to the horrible news first. Kyle Schwarber suffered a pretty traumatic injury. He's out for the season towards ACL. Were you watching when it happened? I was not. I was listening in the car. I was driving, yeah, from Urbana to Champaign. And, uh, what was the call like on the radio? Uh, Pat Hughes, the Cubs radio, uh, play-by-play guy, um, a legend with Cubs fans. Um, you could tell he was, he was pretty, uh, torn up about it. Um, and so that, just right away, I knew something bad had happened, even not having seen it myself. Um, but he just described, you know, Schwarber being in tons of pain, not being able to move. Um, it was an inside the park homer, so mm-hmm. that kind of added to the frustration. I think the Cubs went, they were down like 4 nothing at that point, or 4-2 or something like that. Um, so just a lot of negative feelings. And then I called uh, one of my roommates, because he was watching, he had texted me. And uh, just asked him his opinion, and he said it was real bad. Uh, just about as bad as you can get for an injury, I think, uh, in baseball. Yeah, and I, yeah, I certainly think it's brutal, and you don't want to see that happen, especially to a young player like Schwarber. But uh, I just started going through the Cubs' like uh, lineup, their position players, and ranking, you know, sort of if there had to be an injury, sure. who would you want it to be done to? And I think Schwarber would probably be fifth or sixth on that list. I would even go lower. So you got Rizzo, Bryant, Hayward, Russell. All oh, you're just talking position players? Yeah. Uh, Ariadne and Lester would be higher on that list, too. Yeah. 
would all probably you would rather have Schwarber get hurt than them, right? Yeah, and I would put him. You say sixth position player, fifth behind Rizzo, Bryant, Hayward, and Russell. I would put Zobrist, Zobrist ahead of him, just because um, you got Solaire behind Schwarber. And they're versus, and I'm not sure who who would place like um, Baez is a pretty big unknown if uh, if Zobrist were to get hurt. Their versatility is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, they have like three options for left field. Solaire, Bryant played left last year, right? Uh, yeah, and he actually in that game he moved to and left. Zobris too. Yeah, and maybe Baez if he plays the outfield. So anyway, uh, we'll talk more later in the podcast with our Chicago correspondent um, about the injury and about how the Cubs are doing. Um, but uh, I think I'm doing better than I was a couple of days ago in terms of just how I'm feeling as a fan. Um, but just a, a really terrible injury and not a fun way to start the season. Uh, so getting into to more baseball. Um, Paul, I thought I'd start. I've got three um, series that were my favorite from opening week, and then I thought you could dive into more of the individual performances that stood out to you. Sure. Okay. So my uh, three favorite series, we've got um, my favorite, the Dodgers and Giants, played a four-game series um, this weekend. Uh, the first game, the Giants won big on Thursday. Hunter Pence hit a grand slam um, on Friday night. Um, is when it started to get really interesting. Uh, Ross uh, Stripling, who's the Dodgers' fifth starter, um, is only on the team because of all the injuries they've had to their starters. Just multiple guys went down in spring training. Uh, so he's making his major league debut. He's a Texas A&M grad, uh, pitched alongside Michael Waka of the Cardinals. Um, but he had a no-hitter into the eighth inning, and then he was pulled by Dave Roberts at 100 pitches with uh, just five outs to go. He had walked Angel Pagan, and the Dodgers were only up by two, two nothing. And um, you know Roberts was going to get second guessed, obviously, because it's not uh, all that common that you have a chance at throwing a no hitter, especially for a guy making his major league debut. What made it really bad, though, was they brought in the reliever, and the first batter that he faced in the eighth hit a two run game tying home run, Um, and then Brandon Crawford in the bottom of the tenth won the game for the Giants. Um, so that is probably the biggest, I think, storyline outside of the Schwarber uh, knee injury from opening week. Paul, what was your take on uh, Roberts pulling Stripling? Do you think he should have done that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't know much about Stripling before the start. And so on the surface, I kind of questioned Roberts. But then the more you read about it and the fact that he's coming off Tommy John surgery mm-hmm. and even uh, hearing more about his interaction with Stripling's dad. Yeah, that was, that was fun. His, you know, his dad is, you know, teary-eyed saying thank you for protecting my son essentially so after that you're like yeah it's probably the the right move by roberts and hey have a good bullpen Mm -hmm. um, on paper at least and so i thought friedman came out and said he was fully supportive of roberts and the decisions he made gave them the best chance to win and i tend to agree with him yeah i would agree um i think he made a pretty courageous but good decision because he knew he was going to get second guessed Um, it was kind of a lose-lose situation if the Dodgers would have won you know got the next five outs and won he still would have got heat mm-hmm. and of course he was going to get heat if um he left them in and he got hurt later or something like that probably easier to make that call though with a rookie versus uh sure yeah he, rookie's not going to speak out against him especially uh he had Tommy John surgery in 2014 yeah um so thought a good decision by Roberts but didn't pay off um for him uh he actually got ejected from that game as well so probably some frustration on his part Saturday's game also went 10 innings. Uh, the Dodgers won that one. Um, much needed win for them. Uh, Clayton Kershaw faced off against Madison Baumgartner. Great matchup of aces there. And Baumgartner uh, hit a home run off Kershaw. And um, he did this last year as well. And so since the start of 2015, Baumgartner is now tied with Daniel Murphy for the most homers hit off Kershaw hmm. uh, with two. And both of uh, Murphy's homers came in the... Uh, playoffs last year at the uh, NLDS against the... Is Baumgartner a good Mets. hitter? Yeah. Uh, so he's got 12 homers for his career now. So he's a pretty good athlete, pretty good hitter. Uh, here's a stat from uh, ESPN um, Stats and Info. They say, to put Baumgartner's home run power in further context, he has hit a home run in every 8.4 at-bat at AT&T Park since the start of 2014. And the career uh, MLB home run king, Barry Bonds, hit a home run in every... 8.8 at-bats wow. in his career at AT&T Park. So Baumgartner has, has a higher uh, home run frequency uh, rate 
the last couple of years than uh, than Bonds in his career at uh, AT&T Park. Wow. Second favorite series was the Red Sox and Blue Jays, AL East uh, powers. The Red Sox took two out of three from the Blue Jays. Um, lots of scoring on Friday and Saturday night. The Red Sox won those games eight to seven and eight to four, and then um, Blue Jays won on Sunday three nothing. <laughs> Couple funny moments from that series, uh, Paul. I'm sure you've seen Pablo Sandoval's belt broke mm-hmm. on Saturday. Um, I was actually watching this live on uh, MLB Network, and uh, you could tell his his belt broke, and he just chucked it kind of towards the dugout after trying to fix it. Um, but the at bat was still going on, so I, it, the uh, announcers weren't commenting on it at all. Um, and so I really wanted him to put it in play because you could tell his pants were loose and he was kind of worried about it. But, of course, he struck out, so we never got to see that. Um, so saved some of his pride, but then later kind of the close-up vines of it uh, made the rounds. Um, so it certainly doesn't help Pablo's perception of being uh, slightly overweight. That was pretty funny. And then later in that game, um, a ball bounced over Jose Bautista's head. Um, was a triple, I think, for Hanley Ramirez. Um, so that series was a lot of fun. And then the the last one I had was the Pirates and the Cardinals. The Pirates swept the Cardinals to open the season uh, starting last Sunday. Uh, Liriano was great on Sunday. And then um, the Pirates' latest reclamation project, Juan Nicasio, pitched great on Wednesday night as well. And uh, I f- feel like that series kind of set the tone that the Pirates mm-hmm. – um, were uh, definitely poised to have a good season, and the Cardinals uh, might not be up to their um, past years. Yeah, the if first week is any indication how the season's going to go. Looks like you might be in the right. I might be in the wrong. On the Cardinals? Uh, and the Pirates. Uh, oh, yeah, you were down on the Pirates? Yeah, Pirates are amazing with um, especially pitchers. Uh, mm-hmm. But I thought uh, kind of two um, oddities, statistical oddities, I don't know if you saw the Cardinals right after that series had three pinch hit home runs in their mm-hmm. next game. Yeah, I saw that against the Braves. Which is pretty insane. Had never been done before. And then the, the Giants actually in their opening day game hit back to back home runs um to start the season. So I thought that was pretty mm-hmm. pretty amazing as well. What kind of individual performances stood out to you? Uh I mean the big one that we haven't talked about so far is Trevor's story. Mm-hmm. What a story. <laughs> um get that out of the a, way. A gift uh headline renders everywhere. Uh, shortstop for the Rockies, who started the season by hitting four home runs in four games. Well, hit six home runs in four games. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was his debut season. Um, he's a rookie this year. And he, you know, projected to be a decent prospect. Um, actually, Jose Reyes was kind of penciled in to be there. Starting shortstop, they traded uh, Troy Tulowitzki for him last year. And so you know, it's not like they had story locked in at shortstop you know, going years back. Um, but decent prospect, but has just um, had an incredible start to the season. Obviously, that's a record. Um, I think actually three three home runs in his first three games was a record, so to do it in four straight um, kind of broke his own record. You mean record. when uh, someone comes up to hit? Right, in their debut. Okay. Um, but that's a teaser for later on. Um, I'll be talking about uh, the best rookie seasons of all time, kind of inspired by Trevor Story's starts. Uh, so Story's start was incredible, but I guess uh, natively speaking now, uh, Zach Greinke had an equally bad start um, after having a, a sub-2 ERA last year for the Dodgers and um, getting a huge contract with the Diamondbacks. He's given up 11 runs and in 10 innings to start 2016. One of those starts was against the Cubs, who he pitched a little bit better against but still lost. Um, so, yeah. Hopefully for the Diamondbacks, he turns it around. They've had a rough uh, start to the season, about as bad as you could mm-hmm. um, guess for them, with Pollock going down and Granky not pitching well. Yeah, Granky only gave up 41 runs, uh, earned runs all of last year. Wow. Um, so uh, in two starts, to give up a fourth of what you gave up last year in a full season is uh, it's not a good start. But he pitched better uh, after the first couple innings against the Cubs, so I think he'll be just fine. Um, but yeah, like you are saying, Pretty terrible start for the uh, the Diamondbacks. Then Matt Latos for the White Sox. Seriously. Six innings pitched, one hit, like no earned runs. Two strikeouts. A sparkling start to the season. Yeah, uh, I guess team-wise, um, the White Sox have impressed me. Uh, the Orioles are off to a, uh, a hot start as well. They were 
uh, 5-0 and when this podcast was being recorded. Not sure if they won their Sunday game. Uh, the Twins and Braves on the, the negative side. Uh, the Twins, um, it looks like they're going to win their first game of the season on Sunday, but they would just be 1-5. and And then the Braves, same same thing. Looks like they're going to beat the Cardinals, um, but uh, they're just 1-4 and after that win. Um, so those are the last two teams to win a game. Um, also, the Angels are terrible. I feel really bad for Mike Trout. Um, I saw the Cubs play them a couple times, and then I watched um, one of the games the Angels played against the Rangers, and there's just not a lot of talent there. And um, even one of their starters uh, is on the DL with um, an arm injury, and there's not not much going on for the Angels. Um, And Trout, who's off to a bad start, I'm sure is feeling the pressure of that and uh, just feeling the grind of a whole season coming at him of, uh, of just not being good. And I feel like the Angels are the... Maybe them and the Diamondbacks. Um, they tried to be good this year, not planning for the future, don't have much prospects um, coming up, and uh, are just going to be really bad. And so you feel for their good players like Goldschmidt and Trout. I was thinking about that this week. Uh, the Angels actually remind, remind me a lot of, of the uh, Lakers. Yeah, that's a good, good comparison. Um, obviously, Kobe's on the tail end of his career, and Tra- Trout's just beginning. But in terms of how they build around a star mm-hmm. and just what they give that star to work with well and uh Sosha and byron scott i feel like are pretty similar you know kind of old school play hard type of guys mm-hmm. yeah. um, that are probably well respected by a lot of people but um i don't think are good managers or coaches mm-hmm. uh one last thing i wanted to note um before we get to a listener email uh bad weather has has been present all over baseball a lot of postponements I looked up uh, just quickly the stats. This year there have been six postponements during opening week. In 2015 there was just one. In 2014 there was three. And in 2013 there weren't any postponements. So six this year is a lot higher than previous years. And even the games that have been played um, in cold weather cities have been um, pretty rainy, nasty, like the White Sox. Um, Sunday's game got postponed, but Friday and Saturday were terrible Um well, Saturday, they, Cold weather. the ramps going up to the second level at U.S. Cellular Field were, like, iced over. Mm-hmm. So they actually had to move everyone down to the lower level, mm-hmm. which made it look like there were more people there <laughs> on TV. I saw uh, Nate Silver was at the White Sox opening day. Did you see that? Oh, uh-uh. in Chicago? Yeah. Huh. He tweeted a picture. Did he explain why he was there? Uh, I think he had said he was in Chicago for the weekend hmm. um, and on Friday tweeted a picture. He was sitting in the upper deck, though. Oh, yeah, Friday was... But, I mean, you would think he'd have better seats. Yeah, I have a strict... Unless like a, unless it's opening day, I have a strict 40-degree uh, rule with baseball uh, attending games. I, I don't go to... If, if the projected temperature is under 40, I don't go. Similar to your uh, rule on relief pitchers. Which is what? You don't give uh, contracts of a certain length or a certain... Did I say that? Yeah, don't you remember in the offseason? I do not recall that. Maybe I should write these down. Yeah, you said, you know me, I don't give contracts to relief pitchers for more than like three years. That sounds smart. All right, getting to our listener email this week. This one comes from Kate uh, from Champaign. Paul, I believe you know Kate. Yeah, my roommate, also my wife. Yeah. Uh, you can send us emails uh, at afootinthebox at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to answer your questions on the podcast. Kate's question reads like this. Do bats break more or less when coming into contact with particular pitches? Does weather or altitude impact the likelihood of a bat breaking? Does the does the location of where the ball makes contact with the bat greatly impact whether or not it breaks? Great question from Kate. I've got a couple of thoughts. Um, and Paul, you can jump in. Sure. I found a Wall Street Journal article from 2015 written by Joe Craven McGinty. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, she writes that 75% of bats today are made from maple, and this is one of the big issues. There's different types of wood that they use for bats. 75% of today's bats are made from maple, and these bats break more easily than ash models. Uh, and they became more popular because of Barry Bonds uh, when he used them in 2001 to hit 73 homers. And so a lot of players use these maple bats, but they break a lot more often. There was a um, an epidemic, really, in um, the upper 2000s 
Um, so in 2008, there was a record uh, 2,400 broken bats, according to this article, 2,400, and that comes out to about one per game. And I think they're referring to kind of the bat shattering, not just a simple, you know, the, the player can, can feel that it broke or something like that, but when the bat really shatters, about one per game. And uh, a lot of them were flying into the stands or hitting players, so it was just not a good situation. So MLB enlisted the help of a lot of experts to try to see if they could decrease that or see what the problem was. And um, over the years, it's been eight years since that, and um, it's worked. So now it's only down to about one every three games when a uh, bat breaks. And um, so that's uh, good news. Um, a lot of the reason why it's decreased, they figured out it has to do with the grain of the wood. Um, so maple has this sloped grain and ash has straight, and so they've worked to find kind of the best way to produce these bats and the best wood to get. And, Paul, do you know who was quoted in this article? Uh, Alan Nathan. Yes. Friend of the podcast. Dr. Alan Nathan, he is everywhere. He's quoted in all these articles. Mm-hmm. And I, I was reading the article, and I didn't even know that he would be quoted. But So he talked about that as well. Uh, another article in the New York Times, we'll link to both of these in the podcast episode page, Um a quote from that New York Times article says that uh, bats are less flexible in extreme cold, so the ball doesn't travel as well off the bat, and you also see more broken bats. To alleviate these problems, though, the dugouts are heated, and the place where the bats are stored are heated as well. So um, I think that was one of Kate's questions, was does weather impact it? And the cold temperatures do affect it, but they've uh, put in some steps to alleviate those issues. Mm-hmm. Another Alan Nathan nugget. Uh, that I found researching this question, that the breaking of a bat actually has no influence on the exit speed of the ball, hmm. which is uh, breaking of the bat near the handle. Um, and if you go to his website, uh, which we'll link to in uh, our podcast page, he has some slow-mo videos that are just fascinating to watch. A couple guys who have hit home runs uh, with a broken bat. Mm-hmm. Um, so another Nathan tidbit. Um, but in terms of Kate asked about the type of pitch mm-hmm. and it's, this is difficult because, you know, broken bats isn't really a officially kept statistic. Um, but anecdotally, I think pitches with a uh, hard late break, break a lot of bats thinking Mariana Rivera, um, who, so like cutters, cutters, no, yeah. not sliders or uh, hard sliders. I, I would think fastballs and cutters would be yeah fastballs just, that have movement. Yeah, just pitches where a batter can't uh, square up a pitch very well. Yeah. Um, and I was actually uh, reading about Rivera and some of his um, uh, just um, his amazing ability to break bats. In the 2010 playoffs, he actually recorded a save against the Twins where he faced four batters and broke all four of their bats. Dang. Which is pretty insane. And the New York Times, a uh, writer for them, just kind of kept track by himself. And over the course of, I think it was the 2003 season, 80 at-bats, 40 broken bats, hmm. which is, um, again, 50% is a ridiculously high number. Um, so I think, yeah, hard pitches with late movement is where you're going to see a lot of um, bats breaking. Um, and the, I think the location of the pitch, like uh, inside the both lefties and righties, you're sure. going to see more broken bats. Yep. Um, and I think another important thing to note, last year there was actually a really scary incident Red Sox fan got hit um, in the head and uh, initially was believed to be in life-threatening condition, but um, is still alive today. And the guy who whose bat was broke was actually plays for the White Sox now, their second baseman, Brett Laurie. Hmm. So another interesting tidbit. Yeah, every year there's um, there's a lot of those, uh, unfortunately, of the uh, broken bats that fly in the stands or f- you know, fly towards um, players on the field to Tyler Colvin. Had a really bad injury uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago. Anything to add? No. Thanks for the question, Kate. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, Kate. Uh, you can send us an email, like Kate did, at a foot in the box at gmail.com. All right, getting into this week's podcast, we've got all our normal segments back out of the box. Uh, we've got Paul's stat segment, his return. You ended on about... Eight straight weeks of fielding stats last week. So I look forward to see what you're talking about this week. Uh, we got Sounds of the Game makes its return, uh, and then interview with our Chicago correspondent, and then we'll close out the podcast with um, some fun stuff at the end. So 
Uh, first up, we have Out of the Box. All right, this is Paul, and the article that I read this week uh, was Better, Faster, Younger, Why Baseball's Young Stars Are Its Best in 20 Years, and it was by Peter Keating of ESPN the Magazine. Peter, have you read this article? I have not. Actually, uh, I wrote it. Peter Keating <laughs> is my writing name. So uh, Keating did a statistical analysis of the youth movement in baseball. You know, we talk a lot about guys like Trout and Harper, Arnado for the Rockies, Chris Bryant. And it feels like there's, you know... <laughs> Abnormally more young players today than there's been in a while. I feel like that list of players you gave was pretty random. Uh, Maybe a little bit. Uh, But it feels like there's more young players today. Sure. Really good young players than is typical. But is that really the case? Um, And that's the question that Keating um, seeks to answer. And he says, yes, absolutely. Um, So he analyzed data from the last three decades to determine what percentage of elite seasons in a, in a particular year came from players under the age of 26. And he defined an elite season by being one standard deviation or more uh, above the average in wins above replacement. So he, he's using war here to, to find this answer. And after hitting a low in 2002 of only uh, 6% of the elite seasons coming from players under the age of 26, 2015 was the high in the last 30 years. Any guess what percent of elite seasons last year came from people under the age of? Well, some of this depends um, on like a lack of productive players that are older too. Good point. Um, so I will say uh, 45%. 35. Hmm. Um, yeah, so over a third of the elite seasons last year came from players under the age of 26. And then Keating spends the rest of the article kind of analyzing why that might be the case. And he points specifically to um, scouting improving over the last 30 years, both uh, domestic here in the States and international. And a couple fascinating stats. In 2012, the Rays spent more money than anyone else on signing international players. They spent $4 million. Last year, the Dodgers led all of baseball in signing international players, they spent $44 million. Hmm. So just you know, $4 million to $44 million in three years. Um, so just more and more money is being pumped into signing international players. And then if you look domestically, scouting improving, there was a study done, and the expected war of players taken number one overall in the MLB draft has increased by 35% over the last 30 years. Yeah, it seems like more and more the top draft picks you can expect them to be pretty good. And there are still some busts. Sure. Um, Matt Bush being one of them. But uh, Who's making his return. Yes. Um, but, yeah, you're right. More and more, there's just an expected, at least that your number one overall pick would be a decent MLB player. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, uh, teams grow more and more confident in their scouting, uh, they hesitate less about getting these players to the majors. I think for a time, there's kind of this expectation that they would – Develop them, and they had to spend several years in the minors, but that's that's definitely no longer the case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was that was the article I read. Interesting that last year was the, the high water mark in terms of elite seasons being from players twenty six and younger. Yeah, one thing I thought about um, when you're reading that, I was looking at who I was going to pick to to win the rookie of the year this year in the National League, and looking at some of the candidates in the American League as well. Uh, last year. Um, was definitely unique. Like there won't be nearly as many mm-hmm. guys that come up this year that produce like last year. Sure. I mean, you had so many just studs last year with Bryant and Correa and Lindor and like Seager with the Dodgers, who mm-hmm. I guess could win it this year too. But you had just so many guys that produced right away. Sure. Sano with the Twins. Um, and so looking at this year's crop, there's just not as many. Um, and so I think it was Trevor Story. Yeah, there you go. Um, it was a unique year. 2015 was a unique year, and mm-hmm. to see all the young talent, and even probably um, you know 2012 when I think that's when Trout made his debut yep. um, through 2015 were unique, um, and all the young talent that came up. Machado is another guy I thought of that you didn't name mm-hmm. in your uh, your list. Um, it's a good article though. I'll check it out. Uh, before I get to my article. I have a question for you, Paul. Uh, a lot of people 
we'll write articles about how baseball is dying for different reasons. What reasons do you, do you kind of think of when you hear that? Like baseball is dying because of uh, kind of like localized baseball. Uh, fandom of individual cities isn't dying, but like fandom of national interest that's dying. And what, what about things from like the game itself? Uh, length of the sport is often pointed to as, you know, in modern day society, we don't sit for three hours and watch. Well, like both the length of the season and the length of the yeah, certainly. The game. Um, yeah, those would be at the top, and then also marketability of players. Mm-hmm. Some other ones I had thought of: uh, lack of offense sure. is the main thing that even the commissioners talked about. Uh, steroids, um, more so, you know, probably ten years ago. Uh, drugs, way back, and like. You know, it seems like 70s, 80s, uh, everyone was on drugs, and mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people thought that would uh, kill the game. Um, game length, what you had mentioned, uh, greed, free agency. When those things came out, I think a lot of people thought it would mean just the death of the sport, um, greed of the owners, the strike, those things. Um, anyway, so there's so many reasons why people think baseball is dying. And this week, Tom Verducci added uh, another one to the list one I hadn't thought of before, but he wrote an article for uh, Sports Illustrated, and he posed the question, are dominant bullpens um, that are so prevalent today, are they bad for the game? And um, he wrote about this because it takes away the late-inning comeback. The lack of late-inning comebacks is bad news because when you think of your favorite baseball memories or moments, generally those tend to be a, a good comeback or mm-hmm. a, a close game um, late in the game. And so Verducci, I mean, it's a well-written article, and he gives a lot of good evidence. Um, his evidence is based um, in the fact that the on-base percentages from innings 7 through 9 has decreased um, compared to the other innings um, over the past uh, several years. And so there is some evidence to back it up. But when I was reading the article, I had thought, man, can't just someone just do the math and see if late inning comebacks are down? Like, OBP might be down, but... Mm-hmm. Why not just see if late inning comebacks are down? So it, it seemed a little just lazy reporting by Verducci. And sure enough, Russell Carlton, who writes for Baseball Prospectus, the day after Verducci released his column, looked into it. And um, he showed that you know even though on base percentage is down, so bullpens are giving up less um, hits and walks late in the games than they used to, uh, the late inning comeback isn't down really at all. Um, and the the secret behind why this is, the thing that Verducci missed, is that with lower scoring, there's more chances for late inning comebacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to t- uh, read uh, part of the article, he says, yes, bullpens have been scarily good lately. Yes, scoring is down. Yes, the pitcher is ascendant. But that means that scoring is down in the early innings as well. While it might be a lot harder to push three or four runs across Wade Davis... The upswing in pitching over the last half decade means that there are more games where you don't have to push across three or four runs to win, but that too will do. The distance to travel back is a little shorter than it used to be, even if the road is a little more treacherous. Pretty good writing there from Russell. The yep. distance to travel back is a little shorter than it used to be, even if the road is a little more treacherous. Can there be any more deflating feeling for a writer than to have someone do like work to prove directly contradict your... Mm-hmm. argument the day after you write something in my takeaway from the article which i encourage you to read read both of them to see what you think but my takeaway is when you hear people talk about um, baseball or any sport dying for a certain reason or that's the headline just be skeptical of it and these things are always worth talking about i mean this is good discussion but to take it to the extreme every time i think just gets a little old and is kind of lazy um, even this past week i heard joe sheehan who paul is a huge fan of Big Joe fan. Um, he was on a podcast that I listened to, Effectively Wild, and um, he was talking about how roster construction was killing the game, that too many teams were um, having 13-man bullpens, and so that there was less bench players. So late in the game, you couldn't pinch hit. You had to use a, a bad player to hit. Um, talked about how bad that was for the game. So even hearing that, I was like, come on. like Chill out. These things correct themselves. There's always something that you think is just going to destroy the game, and yet... The game continues on. It'll be fine. Um, like the strike happened. Like an entire season was wiped away. Mm-hmm. And baseball is still, um, you know, around and kicking. So um, just my thoughts on that. Do you have any 
input? Uh, I think uh, Verducci's on to something with late inning comebacks being the most exciting part of baseball. Sure. Um, I don't know. I had this experience this week. Is there any better feeling as a fan than when you're down by a couple runs and the relief pitcher that they bring in can't throw a strike? Yeah. That's like an amazing mm-hmm. feeling. Um, so I think he's on to something there, but from what it sounds like, I haven't read either of those articles, but, uh, he may have just been a little lazy in his reporting. Um, but I, yeah, I think modern day journalism just causes us to say, or causes us to have hot takes to get read. And mm-hmm. that, that's why the word kill, or, you know, this such and such as killing baseball is probably used more often than it should be. Yeah. Your column next week should be baseball is dying because... And just like make up a crazy da 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 yeah. yeah, you know. Well, do you remember when we were in Cooperstown? Uh, we found a Sports Illustrated from the '80s that talked about the NFL dying. Yeah, is the NFL dying or something like that? Because of how boring the game was. Yeah, and now you look and it's the most popular sport by a mile. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, that does it for out of the box. Next up, we have the return of Paul's stat segment. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they can put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is? Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. Yeah, so this is Paul with our stat of the week. And uh, as Peter mentioned earlier in the podcast, last year I focused on individual stats, probably covered over 35 Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, those got pretty tedious towards the end. As you mentioned, I had mm-hmm. kind of four or five in a row on fielding metrics and they were interesting for me to research, but probably not the most interesting for you to listen to. So this year, what I'm going to try to do is apply those statistics, uh, to certain questions. So, uh, for example, this week, I want to talk about the top three rookie seasons of all time using statistics. So not just kind of like subjectively, who do you think was the best rookie of all time? But actually looking at um, advanced metrics and analyzing who are the top three of all time. And I hope to do that more throughout the season. So that's what you can look forward to with this stat segment this year. Uh, and if people have questions they want answered, they should send them to you, right? Absolutely, yes. Uh, Pete, as we dig into uh, top three rookie seasons of all time, do you have any guesses? Maybe just one guess? Well, of course, you have to start out with uh, Henry Rowan Gardner. Of course, yeah. Came in mid-season, uh, kind of a, a long reliever, closer mix, but really lifted the team's spirits. His war probably wasn't too high. I don't know. He was pitching in most games. That's true. So I'm, i got to go with him. Uh, did not make the list. Bogus. Uh, I'll start with my honorable mentions. Uh, Mike Piazza, 1993. Ichiro Suzuki, who's one of two players to win both Rookie of he the Year count. and MVP. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. But. He's foreign. So Suzuki was 2001, and then Pujols was 2001, and that I think is the greatest uh, season of rookies of all time. 2001, you have um, Pujols and Suzuki, but we're not looking at combined NL and AL. Uh, so getting into the top three, uh, my number three is Dwight Gooden, uh, 1984 for the mm-hmm. Mets. He went 17 and nine, 218 innings pitched. His uh, Strikeout per nine innings was 11. Did he win Cy Young that year? He did not. Okay. Um, he got all but one first place vote for rookie of the year, which I think is kind of ridiculous. And actually, that's a teaser for next week. I'm going to look at, unless one of you sends me a question, <laughs> um, the worst rookie of the year season of all time. Um, but anyways, uh, 11 strikeouts per nine innings, uh, 2.6 ERA. And that year, the league average was 3.81. So a little bit higher than we're used to. So um, a full run lower than the league average. And his war that year was a ridiculous 8.3. And he had uh, seven complete games, three shutouts. And his whip was 1.07. Rick Rick Sutcliffe won signing that year when he was great with the Cubs. um, And so uh, Gooden's whip was um, well below the league average of 1.34. Uh, so just a terrific season, and his his numbers are great by themselves, but especially when you compare them to league average that year, um, just a really, really good season, and I think the best um, rookie of the year for a pitcher of all time. Two is Dick Allen, 1964 for the Phillies. Um, 
we've covered 1964 in our in a previous podcast talking about the Barry Goldwater election. <laughs> of course. Um, so crazy political time. Uh, but Dick Allen had an insanely good year in 64 as well. Uh, 29 homers, 91 RBIs. But he had a 382 on base percentage. League average was around 313, so similar to today's game. Uh, had a really, really good slugging percentage of 557, which was over 200 points better than the league average. And he had an 8.2 war, which was third in all of baseball that year. Are you aware of how awesome Dick Allen looked playing baseball? Yes, yeah. He, put, he went on to play for the White Sox, my favorite team. So. Check out this picture. Yeah, he's had a great Fruman Chew and, and Fro. Oh, um, yeah. For a while, I thought Dick Allen was white. I'd never seen a picture of him. He but. is about as black as you can get. That's true. Um, and Dick, he was also, so he led the league in runs scored that year, led the league in triples, and was second in total bases. And then he was top 10 in slugging, OPS, and doubles. So all around great year. Um, as I mentioned, third in war uh, in all of baseball. That's really impressive as a rookie. So he is my number two. And then my number one, um, not surprising, Mike Trout. Mm-hmm. Uh, the by far the best rookie season of all time. And as I was going back and looking at the numbers, just amazed even more uh, that he bust onto the scene that year. His war was 10.3, which was two runs better than the next person in all of baseball. And he uh, was one of the few people that got all 28 first place votes for rookie of the year. So 100% unanimous choice for rookie of the year in 2012. Um, First in stolen bases, first in runs scored, fifth in OPS. Um, he had 30 homers, um, 49 stolen bases, on base percentage near 400 when the league average was 319, slugging percentage 560, league average was around 400. So just an incredible year by Trout, and uh, I would say by far the best rookie season of all time and kind of the, the gold standard as we move forward. So three good and two Dick Allen. One Mike Trout. That's correct, yes. It's a pretty good list. Yep, so send me your questions if there's a, a question or topic that you want me to, to look at from a statistical standpoint. But like I said, I plan on covering the worst rookie of the year season of all time next week. And uh, we're looking for names for this segment. Yep. So if you've got a great name, uh, send it our way as well. All right, well, that does it for Paul's stat segment. Next up, we have Sounds of the Game. All right, so we're back on the podcast with Sounds of the Game. This is a segment we started doing about halfway through uh, last year, and it's a chance for us to talk about um, one announcer or kind of one moment, one call from uh, baseball's history. Uh, There's so many great um, announcers and so many great broadcasting moments um, that this segment was definitely one of my favorites from last year. Um, So each week we take a look at one announcer or one uh, play or one moment, um, in baseball's history, and we play the audio of that clip for you and kind of talk about the context of it. So to kick off 2016, I thought I would be fair. Uh, we played a lot of bad Hawk Harrelson to uh, intro your stat segment, so I thought it would only be fair for me to play one of his best moments because, you know, even though he is a bad broadcaster, by most people's account, he um, he's not uh, completely terrible. So a little background on Hawk Harrelson. He's the current TV play-by-play announcer for the White Sox. Part-time. Yeah, only uh, only road games, right? That's correct. He actually lives in South Bend, which is a two-hour drive from Chicago. Questionable home choice there. Um, he played in the majors for nine seasons. That was a while ago because he's in his mid-70s now. Seems like it was just yesterday, the way he talks, though. <laughs> uh, yep. Um, his best years came with the Red Sox and the Indians. He made one all-star game. And, Paul, I'm not sure if you knew this, but some people credit him with inventing the batting glove. Hmm. Does Hawk himself credit himself? With uh, I would assume so, but uh, he's a huge golfer, and so he just started wearing a golf glove. But according to historians, uh, people had also used um, gloves in the past, uh, but they do credit him with reinventing or bringing back the batting glove in the uh, 60s and 70s. Um, after he was done with his playing career, he became a broadcaster right away with the Red Sox, and he actually worked with um, Dick Stockton, pretty well-known announcer who did lots of things over the last several decades. Um, he also, Hawk Carlson, was also the GM for the White Sox for one season, did not go over well, uh, 
uh, fired Tony La Russa, fired Dave Dombrowski, a young Dave Dombrowski. Anyway, uh, Hawk is now the play-by-play guy for the White Sox, has been since 1990, and uh, yeah, just 26 great seasons. Right, Paul? No, I would say he's by far the most arrogant announcer I've ever come across. But he does have his moments. So the moment in the game we will talk about today, July 23rd, 2009. Paul, do you know what that date is? I don't. I'm intrigued. Oh, my. You're a terrible White Sox fan. It's Mark Burley's perfect game. Mm. Call your friends. Call your daughters. Yeah, so we will play the last uh, several outs from that game, uh, picking up the uh, uh, end of the top of the eighth inning. So here is Hawk calling Mark Burley's perfect game. The 2-2 pitch. Line drive. Call your sons. Call your daughters. Call your friends. Call your neighbors. Mark Burley has a perfect game going to the ninth. That ball hit deep in the left center field. Wise back, back. Makes the catch. What a play. Wise makes the catch. What a play by Wise. Mercy. A great catch by Dwayne Wise. As Wise goes back into the wall, knowing he has no room to spare, he goes up over the wall and then juggles it before corralling it. What a play by Wise. Under the circumstances, one of the greatest catches I have ever seen in 50 years in this game. He gone. One to go. Alexei! Yes! 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 History! Yeah, that is a, a pretty amazing call. Um, I like with Wise's catch. Like, at first, he's not that. Uh, emotional about it, but then mm-hmm. like when he kind of realizes that he actually did catch it, he just kind of like best catch of all time. Emotional vomit on the, on the microphone, but he's also very good at the um, the subtle compliment towards himself. You know, like one of the greatest catches I've seen in my fifty oh, years. Oh yeah, in the drops game. that in. Um, but yeah, just that was a really really cool moment as a White Sox. Fan. Did you get to see that game? Yeah, I watched it live. Yeah, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the circumstances. Um, I must not have had a, a full time gig that summer. Yeah, classic but, Paul summers in high school. I remember right? watching it with uh, my dad, who's also our dad, who's a White Sox fan. Uh, you didn't call your family or your neighbor. I didn't. Yeah, I was thinking just listening to that now. We should start using that saying like more often, or the the history, just declaring something history too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I thought I, at first I thought you were going to pull the the Wigner clip, which you've used before oh, no. on the podcast. No, that's not one of his best. I'm sure we'll do a week of bad hawk, but this is good hawk. Um, he's definitely a homer, but uh, moments like that, you're you're kind of glad uh, that you have a homer in the booth. Well, that does it uh, for sounds of the game. Uh, but one last thing I wanted to play a radio uh, call from earlier this week, John Miller of the Giants on Thursday um, had a pretty hilarious call of Hunter Pence's Grand Slam. Um, Yeah, like I said, from Thursday, Hunter Pence is the one that hits the Grand Slam. So here is John Miller's call of that. Now the 1-0 pitch. Swing, and there's a high drive deep into left center field. It's on its way. Adios! Pelota! A Grand Slam for Buster Posey's good friend, Hunter Pence, 12 to 6 Giants. They have broken it open here in the eighth inning, and Pence gets his first four. RBI. Just to replay that for you, if you missed it, here, uh, here it is. A grand slam for Buster Posey's good friend, Hunter Pence. It's an excellent recovery. Oh yeah, on the fly. I wonder, are they good friends? I doubt it. I guess. I don't know. Maybe they are. Anyway, uh, that does it for Sounds of the Game. Next up, our interview with our Chicago correspondent. 
All right, we're back on the podcast with our Chicago correspondent, Kevin. How's it going? Doing very well. How are you guys? Doing uh, doing great. Uh, you just got yeah, back from covering the team in Arizona, is that correct? <laughs> I wish. Actually, I hear it's raining in Arizona today. But it's a dome, though, right? Then, yeah, they shut the roof. They had to shut the roof. Too bad there's not a roof in Chicago at the south because uh, weather has been horrible for them. It has. It has. All right, so for uh, new-time listeners, Kevin is our older brother, lives a couple blocks from U.S. Cellular Field, uh, but we brought him on this week to talk about the Cubs. Uh, mm-hmm. Kevin, you're a, a Cubs fan like myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, just walk us through your emotions uh, following the Schwarber uh, injury. Uh, awful, awful. Yeah, I was um, watching it live, and uh, it was just a weird play. You could see it off the bat that it had the potential for something like that, and you just hope that someone was going to call call the other off. Um, and it just it was just a a terrible thing, but you know, you and I talked about it a little bit. It's it's kind of a weird thing because I'm still just as confident uh-huh. in um, in the fact that you know we'll we'll make the playoffs, be competitive in the playoffs, maybe make a run um, toward the World Series, even without Schwarber there, um, which I think is a testament to the depth of the team. For me, though. I just feel sick for Schwarber. You know, I think it's going to be such a fun, exciting year, and he's kind of developed into this folk hero status mm-hmm. where it's just so fun to watch him play and watch him be a part of the team, and it just stinks that um, he doesn't get to be a part of it. So it's kind of a weird thing. Like, almost just feel really bad for him, um, but you're not really discouraged in the fact that you don't think the Cubs are still going to make a long run. So it's just an unfortunate thing, though. Yeah, and as um, you were talking, I see that uh, Arietta just hit a 440-foot home run. Yeah, yeah, about 20 minutes ago we did. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he crushed it. Wow. He crushed it. Um, yeah, it was a no-doubter. To, uh, like, almost straightaway center, a little bit less center. But... Uh, Kev, this, well, is, this is Paul, and uh, Peter and I were discussing this earlier, but if you had to pick one person from the Cubs opening day lineup, to get hurt, uh, where would Schwarber land on that list in terms of, you know, top eight? Yeah, well, I think that question probably came from a discussion Pete and I had a couple days ago. Uh, it did. We talked about this a little bit. Yeah, it's, um, well, again, that's the interesting thing. He he would probably fall kind of low on that. Well, I guess if you're phrasing it, who cannot get hurt for the Cubs to do well, he would fall low on that list mm-hmm. because at the top of the list you'd have guys like Arietta and Lester, Rizzo, um, Hayward, Bryant, um, may, honestly maybe even like a Russell. I had um, I had Russell and Zobrist uh, on my list. Yeah, yeah, so he, he falls, I mean, pretty low. He, he's a guy again that you really want to watch all year and you want him to be a part of the team. But just in terms of the Cubs being able to um, to adapt to an injury, I mean, it, it would definitely be an outfielder just because you got Soler there who can take over, and you just you got a lot of depth there. Um, so yeah, I mean, objectively, he he's not as important of a piece as some of those other guys, um, but you know, it's still you still just feel sick for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a weird thing when you know depth is their strength, and that was talked about all throughout the off season. But then, like when it actually when you have to use that depth, it's like a weird it's a weird thing, right? You don't want to have anyone get hurt at the same time. Like, yeah, yeah, you don't really want to have to use the depth, um, but I mean that's why it's there. And I think you know everyone is saying how lucky the Cubs were last year to not really have to face any major injuries and. You just almost kind of had this feeling like they'd probably face a little bit of adversity this year. Um, I think it's just the way that it happened was so disheartening because it was such a major contact injury mm-hmm. um, in a sport that doesn't have those kinds of injuries typically. And, you know, Pete and I talked about this a few days ago. If, um, you know, if you were to, to describe an injury where there's kind of a blunt force to the 
side of the knee that's going to tear <clears throat> an ACL and whatever other tendon it was that he tore, you'd probably kind of have a hard time figuring out how that might have happened. There are really only a couple types of plays in baseball that could result in something like that. So just such a fluke play, and it's, it's too bad. Definitely. Uh, other than Schwarber, the Cubs are off you know, to a good start. Um, mm-hmm. If they win today, they'll be 5-1. and one. What uh, what have been your takeaways from the Cubs and, uh, I guess, all-around baseball from the opening week? Well, the, the Cubs offense is going to be really fun to watch this year, I think. Um, you know, even on days where the staff um, uh, maybe doesn't have their best stuff, uh, you're just still always going to be right there with a chance to win. Um, I think you're already seeing the Zobris move paying dividends. Um, to me, it looks like Rizzo's really locked in. I think he could have an even bigger year than he had last year. Um, you know, the, the thing I worry about is still the pitching, mm-hmm. um, particularly the, the bullpen. And I know the bullpen, um, they, they did a lot of work on it in the off season, but I, I think what they did was they made sure they got guys who could maybe spot start here and there. Um, they got some really versatile players out of that bullpen. I'm just not real confident in how well they're going to do. Um, they, they could have a great year. I just, to me, that's kind of a question mark. Um, you know, Lackey didn't look real great, so, you know, he's kind of a concern. But um, o- overall, that, that Cubs offense is just going to be real fun to watch. And, you know, I think another storyline is whether or not Arietta is going to be a similar kind of pitcher that he was last year, because I don't think anyone expects him to repeat what he did last year. I mean, that was a historic season. Um, but, I mean, so far it seems like he's locked in and he's, he's picking up right where he left off. Um, so in terms of the Cubs, you know, the offense is going to be real fun to watch. I'm excited to see what they do this year. Um, and then across baseball, I think I try not to draw many conclusions in the first uh, few games just because it's no fun. Size. I know, I know, but sometimes the small sample sizes are kind of hilarious. You, know, you project, you project guys out to hit like 400 home runs for the <laughs> year or something like that. Um, yeah, I guys, I'm being uh, told that my son has just uh, woken up, so I mean, I need to cut this a bit short. Um, I, but for the listeners who don't know, my wife and I just had a. Uh, a son a few weeks ago. So great Duty calls, guys. Duty calls. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, go take care of uh, baby Jake. Oh yeah, and uh, you guys talked about him on the podcast. So hopefully, uh, your listeners all know who he is. By the way, you missed one, Jake. Who's that? Um, the uh, fictional character Jake wasn't he the catcher in Major League? Oh, Jake Taylor. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. He- kind of a hero yep uh one last question before you go kev um sure sure I, of course i always have to ask you who threw a no hitter in 2015 threw a no hitter in 2015 yeah uh yeah i've missed him twice on trivia question uh i don't remember so we've I got we, no we've got scherzer twice arietta mike fears uh, iwakuma hamels who's that last one from the uh, giants i don't remember rhymes with weston Heston. Yes, Heston. there you go. There you Nailed go. Nailed it. Third time's the charm. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, well, thanks for jumping on with us, and uh, go Cubs. All right. Thanks, guys. Go Cubs. Thanks to Kevin uh, for jumping on with us there. Um, closing out the podcast, bottom of the ninth. Um, we've got a few different things that we do. First up, Paul's name segment. Thanks to Destiny's Child for that intro, a throwback, certainly. One of Paul's favorite songs. Yes, so our name this week is uh, Sweetbread Bailey. He's a player from the early 20th century, uh, and typically, uh, you know, like we did Oil Cam Boyd last week, but when you look to their real name, it gets a little less exciting. I think it was Dennis Boyd last week. Mm-hmm. But with Sweetbread, it gets even better. His real name is Abraham Lincoln Bailey. <laughs> Uh, and there's actually been three Abraham Lincolns in the history of Major League Baseball, which is kind of interesting. But getting back to Sweetbread, 
He was also known as Shortbread, so Sweetbread, Shortbread, or Abraham Lincoln. And he was born in 1985 in Juliet, Illinois. 1885? 1895, yes. You said 1985. Uh, sorry about that. 1895, Juliet, Illinois. He actually shares the same birthday as Abraham Lincoln, which is probably why he was given yeah. that name. Yeah. Um, Any conspiracies with, like, John F. Kennedy? <laughs> there were not. Having, like, okay. some something that aligns? Not a ton known about his uh, career or even him personally, but he, we do know that he played in, or that he played three seasons in the majors, um, that he originally had a contract offer from the Cubs in 1917, but elected to serve in World War One. So props to him for serving our country over playing baseball. But then he went on to play for the Cubs and the Brooklyn Robins from 1919 to 1921. Uh, he was a negative 1.3 war player over those three years, uh, 4.59 ERA in 137 innings. Um, best season came in 1919 when he pitched 71 innings and had a 315 ERA. Died at the age of 44. And the best guess for why his nickname was Sweetbread, again, this isn't known as a fact, but from the little research I did online, uh, a sweetbread is a term used for the pancreas of a young animal or human being. Uh, so it could refer to the stomach area. And uh, Bailey had a tendency to hit batters in that area. Uh, <laughs> reported to have hit. What about shortbread? Seven batters in that area. You said another nickname was shortbread. I think it's, yeah, shortbread also refers to that area. I did not know that. Um, I start using that from now on. Yes. Punched so, you right in the shortbread. Uh, yeah, so, uh, Sweetbread Bailey, I think that's just a classic baseball name. Um, well, great. Phenomenal, uh, effort there, Paul. Next up, we have my Yahoo Answer of the Week. Uh, if you missed last week, each week I'm going to pull one question and answer from Yahoo Answers, which is just phenomenal. Uh, it's a phenomenal resource for uh, any question you have in life, um, so my question is motivated by Dave Roberts' ejection that I saw Friday night, and I also believe that uh, Brad Osmus, Tigers manager, was ejected on Saturday. I'm not sure there was any other ejections from this week, um, uh, but just funny that even one week in the season, people are already getting ejected. Uh, this question comes from Yahoo user Tony G. His question contains no capital letters, and it says the following, uh, Coaches and players argue about a call, but the umpire always wins. So what's the point? Great question. Absolutely. Answer comes from Yahoo user RBKG. Ironically, every letter is capitalized in that <laughs> name. So RBKG says, there are several reasons. It should have been there are several reasons. But there are several reasons. For starters, it can help keep a player from being injected or suspended which could help your team in the next couple games. A coach's argument can raise team morale also. Sometimes a coach will argue when the ump was obviously right just to raise team morale. Case in point was last year. Uh, so I believe this was 2008. Um, so last year, in 2007, when Lou Pinella argued a call where a player was thrown out at third base during a really bad stretch, the runner was easily out. The team went on an amazing hot streak for the next month. Another reason is to make sure the ump makes sure he is calling the same strike zone or making the same calls for each team. The coach may get upset because the ump called a strike three on the corner where it ended up being a ball four in the same spot for an opposing batter. And an argument will never reverse a call. The only thing it may do is cause the umpires to have a conference. After the conference, the ump who made the initial call will decide whether or not to reverse it. Um... So thanks, RBKG. Not sure how much in that answer was accurate, but uh, many, many uh, of the answers referenced uh, team morale being boosted. When uh, so it was oh seven, I mean, that would have been the Cubs with Lupin. Yeah, I actually right? do remember that. He's he's um, kind of right. The team was pretty lackluster, right around five hundred, and then he went nuts. I think they were playing the Braves. Actually, we were in like high school freshman or sophomore. Mm-hmm. I feel like in basketball, that's more the case. Where uh, if a team's playing poorly, mm-hmm. a coach will go crazy I and get a second call. If a manager knows his team, like Madden did that a couple times last year, um, kind of shows that you're standing up for your guys. All right. Uh, lastly, on the podcast, it's time for pick your team. Again, if you missed last week, um, Paul and I, each week of the season, we'll pick one uh, team. 
uh, and their record the next week uh, will become our record. So last week Paul picked the Nationals, and they went uh, three and one this past week, and I picked the Reds, who went five and one. Impressive. So uh, both of us uh, out of the gate, um, and so we can't pick either of those teams again, right? I can't pick the Reds. Paul can't pick the Nationals. Uh, so Paul, who is your pick for uh, this next week? Give me the Red Sox. I uh, they've had a great start this season, and I I really like their team. So you know the Red Sox. Great. I'm going with the Athletics um, because the Angels are coming into Oakland mm. and they are terrible. So give me the Athletics. Their offense, A's offense, is terrible. Yeah, they had a good weekend. Maybe it was just the White Sox pitching. Yeah. Matt Latos shutting them down. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for the podcast. Uh, one note in a couple of weeks, Paul and I are going to discuss um, a new book called The Arm. Yahoo baseball columnist Jeff Passan uh, wrote this book, and it's for sale now. You know, everywhere books are sold, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all those places. Um, and we'll link to it in the the podcast episode page. But uh, Paul and I will, are going to read it and then discuss it in two weeks. So uh, if you wanted to buy it and read it and then hear our discussion or join in that discussion, uh, now is the time. That's the Arm by Jeff Passan. Well, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure to rate and review our podcast there. That really helps get the word out to more people. And it uh, only takes a few seconds, so make sure to leave us a review and rate our podcast on iTunes. You can send us emails at afootinthebox at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. And you can check us out online at afootinthebox.com. And like I mentioned at the start of the podcast, that's where you'll find the updated over-under uh, standings for 2016. I think that does it. Paul, you got anything else? Nope. Good to be back talking about real life baseball. None of that spring training stuff anymore. Nope. And as always, a reminder to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you next week. And Schwarber sends one high and deep, way back. And this ball is long gone. Mercy. What in the world?